Hi, I'm Carrie Schmidt, and this is Making Sense, a podcast produced by the Star Institute in an effort to further our commitment to impacting quality of life by developing and promoting best practices for sensory health and wellness through treatment, education, and research. Occupational therapy best practices ask us to integrate knowledge into practice. On this season of Making Sense, each episode offers a different conversation aimed at translating the most current research into clinical action for occupational therapy practitioners. This season of Making Sense is dedicated to the memory of Janet Wright. Janet was an incredibly enthusiastic occupational therapist. If she were here today, she would have been one of the first to create and host a podcast where students, parents, and teachers could glean some practical information. She did not want OT knowledge to be abstract. She looked for it in everyday situations and in daily routines. Her family takes great pride in knowing that the Star Institute embraces the same passionate principles that guided Janet. As you listen and learn, keep her encouraging voice in the back of your mind and her infectious smile in your heart. Today, I'm joined by Colleen Whiting. Colleen has been a practicing school-based occupational therapist since receiving her master's degree from Boston University in 2000. Her expertise lies in the combination of remedial and compensatory strategies for children with sensory processing and regulation issues. Colleen has a special interest in working with children who have experienced trauma. She has published two articles in research journals regarding trauma and the role of the school-based occupational therapist. One thing that Colleen and I have in common is that we're both pursuing post-professional occupational therapy doctorates at Boston University right now. So welcome. Thanks, Carrie. I'm glad to be here. So in this podcast series, um, we invited the STAR faculty to choose a piece of literature to discuss, um, and you chose Distraction, Distress, and Diversity, Exploring the Impact of Sensory Processing Differences on Learning and School Life for Pupils with Autism Spectrum Disorders. It's written by Elizabeth Jones, Mary Hanley, and Deborah Ruby. So this article highlights a study um, aimed at capturing parent and teacher perspectives on how sensory differences affect learning and life at school for pupils with autism spectrum disorders. Tell me um, why you chose this article. Um, I really, I chose this article because I loved how it had a focus on participation and the effects from disordered sensory processing on children's participation in school. As school-based therapists, we're really charged with looking at kids, whether they've had challenges with sensory processing and if it's affecting their participation and performance in occupational areas such as education, um, their social interactions. So I think that it's really an important conversation to have for school-based therapists to make that connection between sensory processing challenges and their participation in school. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful um, insight and not something you see quite often in literature. Um, And so I love that. You know, right now we're in a really unique time. It's being recorded at the end of 2020 and education has been affected um, by COVID. Tell me a little bit right about your students um, and how they're experiencing education right now. Sure. It's been a really interesting time to work in school-based practice. There's been so many restrictions put in place and changes to kids' environment 
Um, some, some things have become more predictable um, because of safety regulations and other things have become really different. So a lot of the positive sensory experiences that kids may encounter in a school setting, such as, you know, like preschool, they're putting out like a shared bin of rice and hiding objects inside, or, you know, you get a nurturing touch from a teacher when you're feeling dysregulated or sad. And those things are just not able to happen in current times. And so we see an impact on kids, not only in the lack of those positive sensory experiences, but also a lack of ability just to move their body and engage actively with their environment. So a lot of those hands-on educational interactive games that kids will typically play in a classroom, they don't have access to that right now. Um, they're not able to move freely about the classroom or you know, move from changing to receiving instruction from the rug to sitting at a chair. They're, those opportunities are really limited right now. So while this environment for them may be more predictable because they have strict rules on where they should be and, and how they should be acting. It certainly doesn't support a really individualized approach for adapting the sensory load of a classroom for a particular student. I can see that um, personally with my own children who are schooling at home often, but I also imagine um, you see it impacting school participation from the parent perspective and from the teacher perspective. I think that's one of the things this article did so beautifully was balance those perspectives of all the players um, um, who really impact a child's learning throughout the day. Um, you know, one of the things this, this article highlighted um, was some of the difficulties reported by students themselves. Um, specifically that relate to socialization and sensory processing differences that are detrimental to their own experience. Um, and I just was thinking about how socialization and classroom experiences are being challenged um, and experienced in a totally different framework mm. with how education is changed, right? So, you know, socializing now more with families or caregivers um, instead of, you know, teachers, um, at least in, in person, you know, the families and caregivers are in person, the teachers are, are engaging remotely, or how the environment has changed so much, right? That classroom is now living room, classroom is now kitchen table, classroom is not a controlled environment um, deliberately set up by the teacher. Um, and I believe that could extend even to um, the way that you're serving your clients who are students um, in a remote way. So tell me a little bit about that, um, your experience of that and what that looks like right now. Yeah, so I do a lot of work at the different tiers in the school. So I do a lot of, you know, whole school supports as well as, you know, individualized up through individualized supports. And I've really found that as a school-based therapist in light of COVID that that importance of working at tier one and tier two has been really instrumental in helping people to adapt. So for instance, we have parents, you know, having kids work on their regular, you know, 
desk or chair that they might themselves have set up as an office space. And I made a video for my whole school that all of the teachers sent home to the parents on how to adapt the environment to support kids posturally so that they can attend better to instruction. So some of those kind of finer qualities you see teaming with the parents to be able to make some accommodations around and just to better inform them, whereas you didn't necessarily reach out to parents in that way, perhaps um, in, in re regular times, you maybe would be having that conversation with a, with a teacher. And so you're having all of these connections with parents and in education and understanding their kids and their needs and how important the environment is to adapt. Um, but I've seen some kids really thrive in this environment, particularly my kids with a lot of, I know this article spoke to a lot of the anxiety that comes from an unpredictable environment and social experiences. And a lot of my kids that have a lot of social anxiety, they find adults much more predictable. Um, their parents, they have incredible re relational connections with, they feel really safe with them, that I'm seeing them being able to access their education when they're working remotely in a way that they don't in a classroom full of kids. So I do think that there is, you know, a continuum of of kids that are really thriving in this environment and then some kids that it's a real hardship for. I love, I love that what you just said was this also can be a wonderful thing for mm -hmm. people. And what occurred to me when you were speaking was you are really the star faculty specialist on the school-based therapist. And the STAR framework is really based on relationship, regulation, and sensory. And you talked about all of those in citing how the students that are thriving are thriving because their environments are set up to support their regulation they're supported by the relationships that are dear to them with their families and their caregivers. And what it is affording them is an opportunity to learn in a way that is not there for them before. So while we might find this a challenging time, I love that you pointed out that it's probably placing a great demand on their caregivers and their, and their um, teachers to adapt but there are students that are thriving. Yeah. Yeah, that's really important. So one thing I noticed in um, the article is um, that they introduced the Nordic relational model of disability. And it's a framework really for understanding the impact of circumstances on the day-to-day -day life of individuals with autism spectrum disorders and sensory differences. And the thing that I thought was so interesting is how they use that framework to note a mismatch between the environment and an individual's sensory needs and how this can be especially adverse. Um, it impacts academic progression. But you really were able to add another layer to that. And it's a third factor that influences the mismatched. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, one thing that I've learned over the years of working in the schools is how important it is to understand the context that you're moving into. And you're in an educational environment that's 
not this, you know, static piece that we're just thinking about the interactions between the child and their environment. We have another third factor that's really important, and that's the teachers. And I found, you know, a lot of teachers come into these situations with their own sensory profiles. They may not be disordered sensory processing pieces for them, but there are certainly sensitivities. Um, so for example, if I have a student that is more under-responsive and I as the OT are coming in and we're problem solving together about things that could you know, help this student, I have a teacher that I know is over-responsive to input and even having a student with a therapy ball in the past in their classroom said that she feels like she's seasick. Well, I might need to adjust the environmental modifications that we develop together as a team and try to work out for the student to make sure that we're not in our efforts to regulate the student, we're not dysregulating the teacher. Um, the other complexity piece in that is, you know, if you have a student that's under-responsive and a student that's over-responsive in the classroom, how do we meet both of those students' needs? So it's a really complex process. And I loved how they were talking about in this framework, really, that mismatch um, that you can see. And I just think that adding that teacher mismatch piece can certainly impact how successful you can be in accommodating the environment. I love the term mismatch too, because I think it brings a perspective to teachers and to parents alike um, that really can be a difficult thing for them to put their finger on why it's hard for them to engage with that student or that their child and to just say, oh, well, it's a mismatch. You know, there's a mismatch in your sensory profiles is adds a, a layer of understanding that um, demystifies and takes a lot of pressure off of the teacher and the parents because it's nothing about their personality or their temperament necessarily, right? It's not anything that they're to blame for. It's just that they're mismatched. And I love that. I love that language. I think even thinking about, you know, what you were saying as far as like blame and how you're kind of framing things. I do a lot of education, even with teachers around that, just that very matter of factness of whether, you know, this was just a mismatch or the child had this, you know, over responsivity, you know, to the auditory input that was introduced in the classroom. And that, that wasn't something that they were, you know, the student themselves was overreacting to emotionally or whatever. Like this was just a matter of fact that their stress system was triggered and they went into a fight or flight as a response. And it, that is something that's a coping strategy that their body is giving them to get them out of harm's way, whether or not the teacher interprets it that way. But again, it, I feel like it helps them to understanding that there's that, you know, biological connection to what's happening, that it's no one's to blame. It's just, it is what it is. And we're trying to find a better match for them. So. I think that's great. You bring up two terms that I think um, we use a lot at STAR in our framework because we understand sensory processing disorder from a nosology that highlights um, two words that you said, and they were over-responsive and under-responsive. One thing you just brought up was auditory over-responsivity. In the article, they talked about how across the board, from all of the data they gathered, auditory input tends to be the thing that causes the most um, dysregulation, distress, um, 
for students, um, possibly teachers alike, but it was the thing that the, both the parents and the students and the teachers really cited. Um, so in spe specifically in the school setting, they were saying that auditory over-responsivity disrupts concentration and can cause anxiety and physical discomfort. You just brought up one example of auditory input in the classroom um, and how it can cause anxiety um, and that it just is what it is. It's, it, it was an input, it's nobody's fault. It was received in the sensory system this way. Um, talk a little bit more about that and what you picked up on in the article about um, over-responsivity, maybe particular to the auditory system. Yeah, the auditory system, I think that is such an important conversation across the board. I mean, we talk about a lot of tactile experiences when the kids are younger that don't necessarily aren't as prevalent in their schooling. You know, they're not playing with, you know, glue and Play-Doh and such as they get up in the upper ages. But the auditory piece is this continual um, component part that if you aren't sensitive to that, you might be picking up on, you know, as a teacher that your child, you know, screams or puts their hands over their ears in alarm to a fire drill. And those might be things from an education point of view that they kind of get that response. I think what I love that the article highlighted was some of those lower level pieces that can um, dysregulate a child over there. I think they mentioned like a marker drawing, even the sound of that that can dysregulate kids. And I thought that that was really important point because those more subtle pieces are things that teachers might not think about. And in addition to that, you know, just thinking about the cumulative effect that those things can have across the day. So it might be that they were like, this one thing triggered them and they got really dysregulated and we saw the sorts of behavior. Um, that doesn't seem like it matches the response and starting that education process with teachers about, well, I think it was, you know, perhaps this cumulative effect of things kind of building up in their system throughout the day. And then just, you know, that one thing just setting them off. So. That's a great point. I think that's a great thing to remember when we're educating um, teachers and also when we're considering behavior that we're seeing that seem to have come out of nowhere. Right. Um, that we can experience low level stimuli and that we experience as cumulative. So the other um, term that we used uh, that fits into our nosology is sensory under responsivity. In this article, they really highlighted how um, sensory under-responsivity can impact joint attention and emotion regulation and gross motor skills. Um, in particular, they cited um, Pillar and Pfeiffer that found sensory differences were often situated within a particular context um, rather than being a stable trait. Um, so in the context of education, how are you witnessing sensory under-responsivity? It is very interesting. You get, as a school-based therapist, you get a lot more referrals around kids that have over-responsivity versus under-responsivity. Our under-responsive friends are ones more that are going to fall under the radar. They may not be disruptive. They might just look, appear like they're disengaged or zoning out um, at times and or not performing to the level that you thought that they could perform at. I've had lots of kids, you know, they've been, you know, 
the teachers have recognized that they have this high capacity for learning, but they're just not getting there. But it tends to be something that is a little bit less recognized in the school setting. And so um, when they were talking about that context piece being, you know, rather than being a stable trait, kids' difficulties being representative of context, I've seen this be really impactful depending on a teacher and the classroom. So if I have an under-responsive kiddo and they've been placed in a classroom that the teacher is very quiet and reserved and tends to, you know, be very nurturing, but um, tends to move very slowly and um, just th the sensory experiences in the classroom are just not to the level that the child needs to be able to be engaged at. Um, and then perhaps the next year they're put in a classroom with a really, you know, dynamic teacher that uses rhythmical clapping when they do their spelling activities and tends to like notice that the kids are getting looking a little sleepy and they throw up the bright, you know, put all the lights on and have the kids shake their wiggles out. And those little pieces, you can see the kids thrive in. Um, and so the, the match is better for what they need and thus they look you know, like they're very functional and able to participate in the classroom successfully. I love that. I think that was, that's a great illustration of how since individual sensory differences can look so different mm -hmm. and you're highlighting two of the aims of the study in saying that. And one was identification of sensory differences, how individual sensory differences are and how important it is for someone like the occupational therapist in a school-based setting to be able to come in and help teachers and parents and even the student him or herself understand their sensory differences so the other piece of that is um, not just identifying sensory differences but identifying how changes in environment or changes in um, teacher or I guess even a match with a person whose sensory system is a better match for them can really accompany changes in behavior. So tell me a little bit or, um, about what you think about that and how you're seeing that or what jumped out to you in this article specific to that aim. Yeah, I think they talked about, um, you know, teacher match and modification of the environment. And I think that as occupational therapists that's trained in using the star frame of reference in my viewpoint i'm not just thinking about the sensory pieces that can be adjusted within the environment i'm thinking about how the teacher could potentially offer a relational connection to a student that makes them feel um, safe and brings their arousal down even when they can't control the sensory environment um, and i also think about that for some kids these compensatory pieces can be helpful to them, but not enough to make them be able to be successful in participating in school. So for some children, if we've gone through this process, which I always recommend is trying the compensatory pieces, working in the classroom, teaming through consultation, problem solving with the teacher. Um, but for some students, you know, they talk about different sensory differences. For some students, they have 
really significant sensory differences that just adding some of these environmental modifications are not going to be enough to be able to help them to participate. And those would be the kids that we consider whether they need more of a remedial, you know, bottom up approach in the short term to be able to get them to the point, place that their body is able to receive and be successful with some of those classroom modifications. Yeah, it occurred to me that the one of the aims of, of this study, and really it's primary focus is sensory experiences encountered at school and how that affects learning. But I'm real curious about the title. Um, it distraction, distress, and diversity, um, and how, how we see that affecting learning. Um, we talked a little bit about how specific inputs, um, say auditory inputs or over-responsivity to auditory um, signals can really cause distraction. Um, talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about distraction and distress. Um, how, how do you see that play out? And, and why would you think that those things would jump out to these authors in particular when they're talking about the effects on learning? Yeah, so it's, it's something that is, it's challenging um, to be able to really capture what the participation challenges are, because there can be lots of things right in the classroom that are necessarily distracting to a student. And so my thought process is when they looked at these, um, how do sensory differences affect learning, and they're pulling out the distraction and the distress and the diversity um, are things that can really be elements that disrupt and affect participation. So it's not just that the child is um, maybe needing an additional prompt from a teacher to pay attention, that these are kids that are perhaps needing multiple prompts to be able to stay on task. And they're in, in a light of distress that they're not able to make academic you know, advances and um, achievement to the level that they're able to. And so I think for me, what my takeaway from, from those pieces were twofold. The first is that even as a school-based clinician that we're looking at these factors, it's very important that you're remembering these participation issues of distraction and distress and anxiety and finding ways to capture that in your database decision-making. Because they did you know, talk about a few things that you would do to offset some of those pieces, like adding, you know, a sensory um, tool in into a student's um, repertoire. And I think that it's really important that we're looking at making data-driven decisions so that if we're adding that piece in, we're looking at one of these behaviors, measuring that, adding the tool in, and seeing if we're seeing a difference in their participation. Are they presenting as less distracting? Perhaps if we look at that one specifically, are they needing fewer prompts to be able to stay on task in the classroom? And finding ways to make it something measurable that we can see. Um, and then I guess the second part for me is, these are really big parts that affect kids on an emotional level. So, you know, at STAR, we talk a lot about the importance of relationships. So that really highlighted to me that these are emotional impacts that we're seeing as outcomes, as well as them being able to access. So we want to not forget that. And we want to put a, an emphasis on that relational focus um, in the school setting to help offset some of these impacts on kids' emotional um, well-being. Yeah, that's that's really a great synopsis of that. It occurs to me, a couple things occur to me. One is this doesn't just 
impact students with autism spectrum disorder, even though that's what this article was really trying to capture the experience of those students. Oftentimes in educating around sensory processing challenges, we talk about how the, the sensory processing differences or challenges really have to rise to a level where they're impacting function. And that's exactly what you were just saying, that we are seeing the level of distraction. They need an amount of cueing that seems excessive or is excessive for their developmental level. Um, they're experiencing emotional distress where we know that they could have a better school experience. You know, we know that they could have a more enjoyable day. Um, and those distractions and distress might be more applicable to people who are over responding. And what I really hear you saying about under responsive students is their level of engagement mm -hmm. is affected, that that's a functional marker. Um, and so it occurs to me that when you did that kind of synopsis, it also gave a little bit of a framework for people who might be listening, who are wondering, is my student affected? Would they be a good fit for some suggestions from occupational therapy? Or how could I discuss this with their parents? Um, and so I think one of the things that the title of this article brings out is these are the behaviors. This is the functional impact. And what's underlying it are sensory differences. And in the end, these sensory differences having the impact of distraction and distress and even lack of engagement in an under-responsive student are affecting learning. And it's important we have to pay attention to that. So I hope that that could be a takeaway for anybody who's listening who might have a question about a student or about their own child um, and their performance in the classroom. Along the lines of kind of take home messages as far as with teachers and with parents, um, I think it's important to be a detective in terms of seeing a student that it is an expression of a need and perhaps that the occupational therapist can help you really ascertain what's going on for your student. Um, I see a lot of, you know, generic use of a lot of sensory tools and things that are being added and used in classrooms. And it's really important that you're really honing in on for, for exactly the reason we're talking about, you know, whether or not you're needing to upregulate or downregulate the student depends on are they sensory over-responsive or under-responsive? Um, do they have, you know, sensory discrimination challenges or postural issues? You know, if you give a child a ball chair that has postural issues, they're going to be a lot different in their success than a student that has sensory seeking or craving tendencies. And so involving an occupational therapist that can really hone in on exactly what are the sensory differences that the child's having, you know, and that's that third part, right? That diversity, they, you know, spoke a little bit to this as far as kids having different reactions, but really what that comes down to is there's diversity and it's important to hone in on what sensory subtype the child is, is struggling with. And that's going to lay out for us what our recommendations are going to be. Which is a perfect segue into really where the article goes next, which is what factors influence sensory differences um, 
for supporting a child in their environment. So one example that they gave was increasing agency of the student was central to preventing some distressing sensory experiences. So a child being allowed to work individually, perhaps with earphones on, on an iPad, following along with the lesson, um, you know, increased their agency for learning and decreased a distressing um, experience. You're so good at giving these practical suggestions um, just based on your experience. Um, so talk a little bit about what you saw from the article that you also see works in real life. Um, what dial can we turn? What can we recommend? What does this article highlight um, that works to really support students and teachers alike? Yeah, I think the sense of agency was really key. And I haven't seen that represented in a lot of articles. I loved that at the end they did say a piece about um, that they didn't include the voice of the student um, and that that lived experience is an additional really important factor. And this sense of agency is a way that you can really highlight the importance of being really student client centered as occupational therapists. That's our charge. And hearing their voice about you know, not making the assumption that lavender is going to work for everyone. Um, does, do you find that smell grounding or, um, you know, or alerting to you? I have kids will go through a bunch of sensory tools and have them tell me whether that's a grounding thing for them or an alerting thing for them. So they're helping to develop their own toolbox. And I think that honoring that kids are going to have differences of opinions, maybe even some emotional memories to certain sensory experiences that you aren't aware of. And you're honoring that and just giving kids, I, I like to talk about has kids having voice and choice is so empowering for kids. And so this isn't something that we're putting upon them. They're one of the people working with us together to develop things that work for them. And that's how we get them to develop their own toolbox of strategies. We don't want us having to, you know, bring them over, you know, a fidget when they're working at, at circle time the whole time. I want them to get to be the age that they know they have to throw one in their backpack in high school. So if that was what works for them, they've developed their own awareness of toolbox of strategies and become independent with them. They talked about the design of classrooms a little bit. Tell me about that. Um, how, how can classroom design facilitate or inhibit? Um, learning? Well, I think that's one of the challenges right now to, um, you know, classroom designs right now, there aren't a lot of opportunities. So we had built in a lot of kind of time in sections or calming corners or things that kind of resembled where their reading nook was in classrooms um, prior to COVID, where kids had an opportunity to a place that there were some sensory tools and maybe they had chosen that they could go to with, you know, maybe their teacher or a peer and find a way to co-regulate and get back on track together. Those have kind of gone to the wayside, unfortunately, with COVID because you can't have things like bean bags and, and shared tools and all of these pieces. So we've had to be a little creative to how we're developing those spaces within the classroom to have individual tools that they can have access to. But really when you're looking at designing a sensory environment, everything from 
the lighting in the room to the sounds to even whether or not you have your door propped open um, and that the kids are, you know, be able to be distracted by noises coming through the hallway in the classroom can make a big impact on kids. So the important piece is, is that we're thinking about building some of these pieces in proactively. So if we're going to do a sensory break, let's make it a whole classroom sensory break, have a sense of group cohesion and connectedness in the classroom. We're doing this whole piece together. Um, and we've built that in before maybe we're sitting down and having a test and sitting and having to be quiet and having our bodies still, not having something that has been earned, but something that's proactively planned for and part of the routine. I think that's a great point. Um, it also increases agency, right? If we are working in a way that's proactive and not in a way that's responsive, in a way that we're waiting for you to have a distressing situation arise. And that's how you get your break, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. So, um, my uh, child's uh, children's school, the principal asked me to put a sensory um, pathway into the school. And it turns out we did it before a school was changed um, based on COVID restrictions, but it turns out to be a great socially distanced space because it's a pathway built on a ramp which transitions from one level of the school to the next. And so it's one of those things where the children can move through it one at a time in a socially distanced and safe way as a class mm -hmm. in route yeah. <laughs> lunch, in route to, you know, whatever it was. Um, and so not every school is going to have, um, you know, the, the sensory corners or the reading nooks, but, you know, transition spaces can be used in, to support um, some of these sensory breaks that we're talking about, movement breaks, opportunities for um, some sensory input that's different than they're able to get in the classroom. So they were actually um, very specific. They called out a few OT tools that teachers really liked. Can you um, tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, they talked about, you know, headphones um, tend to be something that's widely used in the school environment because it's something that can, you know, break up some of the louder pieces or the distracting noise that's happening in a classroom. They did talk about dividers. I use those a lot for my kids that are um, visually distracted where we, we have, um, you know, like a trifold piece that the kids put up on their desk that they can't see. I think the important part for all of these is that I make sure that it's part of the culture, that these can be tools for all the kids, not just the student that I'm highlighting in. So if I'm bringing in a pair of headphones, I will bring three or four and we make them available during quiet reading time. Or if I bring in something that's a, you know, a pop-up, um, divider piece to put on the desk, we have three or four of them available. So it's developing this culture of acceptance and just kids are honoring that, they're, that these are their needs in this moment and that's okay. And we're grabbing a tool and we're making ourselves functional. I think that's wonderful. I love that idea. I often tell teachers, students will self-select. If you make the objects available, like you're talking about a collection of headphones, you might not understand that that child needs them, um, but they will self-select and they will join in and it's, it can support students um, in many levels. It doesn't necessarily have to be a students who have you know, negative or adverse reactions. So I think something that you're providing today um, through this conversation is kind of 
their last note or their last aim of the study. And that is that greater training is needed um, on this topic. That teachers in particular were able to identify that they weren't necessarily satisfied with their awareness or current understanding of sensory differences. Teachers are so gifted and so amazing and they're balancing so many things all at once from an over-responsive child to an under-responsive child to advanced learners to children who might have some learning differences. And they have to stay up on the latest, um, you know, regulations for what has to be taught that year. And they have to, you know, make sure each student is on pace. And so I love this conversation in part because I hope we are able to share this with teachers to tell them how much we value what they do and how ready and willing we are, you know, we are here to help you understand sensory differences in any way that we can. Um, it sounds like you do that supernaturally in the classroom, um, but talk a little bit about education and how um, training can be supported by policies or how teachers could, um, and occupational therapists who are school-based as well, could really um, support teachers um, and parents alike through this aim of education of sensory differences. Yeah, I think that um, the teachers are our partners in this and they are gonna be the ones that are trying these pieces out day in and day out. And like you said, the complexity of the school context is just kind of overwhelming when you think of everything that they're having to juggle. And so I talk with teachers a lot about what can, what can we do to make these strategies work for you within your routine? So you're not feeling like this is just another thing added and it doesn't happen. How can we work these into making it habits and routines of just how you normally teach your classroom? And the benefit to that approach really is twofold. The first is you have teachers much more willing to not try a strategy and then leave it by the wayside that it becomes part of their routine. But you also have the future piece that teachers are empowered to problem solve and help future students that you haven't even consulted on. Um, and I also do a lot of education and work and teaming with my um, assistants because a lot of times they're the ones that are the hands-on for the kids. Um, and if the teacher doesn't have the ability to individualize and adapt things, the assistant needs to have an awareness. And I think that whole piece about knowledge is power so that them understanding the why that I've made this recommendation is just as important as giving them the recommendation so that they understand and can adapt and problem solve without you there. So. I love that because you said earlier, like we are looking to build independence in students that they are empowered through their own sense of agency, which we know has a positive effect to build a toolbox of strategies. And we rely on teachers and assistants um, and aides in the classroom uh, to pick up on things that really support them. So you, we use in the STAR framework, a tool called a secret. So talk a little bit about um, how a secret can be one of those things that's in a toolbox for uh, independence. 
So I think that teachers, oftentimes when they're coming, they're looking for, you know, what's this particular sensory tool? And I'm on the pre-referral team in tier two in my school. So when teachers are struggling, um, they come and bring those strategies pre-referring to a special education um, referral. It's a problem-solving group. And I think it's so important for school-based occupational therapists to be part of that problem-solving team and conversation that they can highlight with the group that um, if the A secret model is a way to articulate a lot of the you know, clinical reasoning that we will do in our heads of all of the different things that we can shift and adjust to make kids um, more successful. So, you know, the A, um, who are talking about attention. And I mentioned before about that ball chair is gonna have a different effect on the child being able to attend versus someone um, sitting, you know, that's a sensory seeker. And we go through each of the pieces of a secret that we're looking at, how can we support kids' emotional regulation? We talked a lot about today about how this distress um, piece affects kids emotionally and increases their anxiety. What are some things that we can add into their strategy. So it's not just this one sensory tool and here we go, but we're really looking more holistically at kids. And we're also looking at that um, bi-directionality, right? Of that um, them feeling safe emotionally impacts their arousal level and to be able to handle things and attend in class and things like that. And understanding that they're not things that are isolated, but things that are interacting within each other. That's great. I do want to say, um, these tools, such as a secret, which is an acronym, um, we will link resources in the podcast notes. Great. So if somebody hears that and they're interested, um, Dr. Miller wrote a book um, that we can link um, and so that you can learn more about that problem solving collaborative approach. So I think it's time to kind of start wrapping up um, Something from our conversation today that I want to think more about is really this sense of agency and control and its effect on, um, I guess, really minimizing the negative effects of sensory differences for all of us, for students who specifically struggle with sensory challenges, um, but really how agency in our own lives in challenging times um, really are going to, it's going to really make a positive impact. So tell me um, something maybe before you read this article or in the course of preparing for this conversation, one idea that you've had that either changed or evolved or made you want to know more about something. So um, upon reading this article, um, I became really anxious for a new tool to come out that I know of that's supposed to be released this year. Um, it's the Classroom Sensory Environment Assessment. And it really looks at this exact piece as far as the sensory profile of the child and how it matches the children's environment. And I think it's gonna be an incredible tool for school-based therapists to add to their selection of tools when they're doing an assessment um, because it allows the clinician to be you know, working in collaboration with the teacher to find how to better match their student needs with the student environment. I also, um, it made me think about how I use, I use the scope assessment, which isn't as widely known, but it's the uh, short child occupational profile. 
And they have this great section where they're looking at whether the environment supports or inhibits performance for the student. And so again, bringing it back to that participation piece, it's finding ways and tools that we can understand. I think this article really showed about the importance of there needing to be a match between the um, environment and the student. And so when we're doing a thorough sensory assessment, we need to be including that as part of our tools that we're looking at how well does the um, environment match the student's needs. That's great. Um, tell me something that you're curious about right now. I guess I I love you know research as as, as you mentioned we share the on um, that we're both working on our doctorate right now and I just really feel like I want uh, school-based clinicians to be empowered and start building evidence in their own area. There's not a lot of evidence done by school-based practitioners, um, particularly around sensory processing. There really isn't, isn't much of anything. And so having some effectiveness studies out there, for example, and making more evidence-based practice um, is my, the focus of my doctoral project and I'm working on. And ironically, I'm, um, I, I insisted on including this extra qualitative measure where I'm having kids do like a card sort where I'm having the kids, you know, say whether things are still hard or easy or whether they like things or didn't like them because I wanted to hear their own experience. Just their participation is the focus of my study, but it's I, that those pieces are really important too. What's their lived experience? And I'm also going to be doing interviews with the teachers on their lived experiences and do they feel like I've, they've gained in their capacity of knowledge um, to be able to support kids through our consultation. So I'm really excited about um, that project ongoing right now and putting that into, into play. <laughs> I'm excited about that too. I can't wait to <laughs> see, see how that develops over time. Colleen, thank you so much. Um, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for your contributions to school-based occupational therapy. Um, thanks for having this conversation and bringing your thoughtfulness to it. Um, tell people, particularly maybe some occupational therapists who might be school-based, um, a little bit about where they could find out more about you and the work that you do. Sure. Um, so I helped start to develop their school-based intensive course. And it's really unique because it's taking all of these pieces of sensory processing and bringing it to the context of the school, which is so important because it's a different context. Um, kids qualify for services or you have different access to kids at tier one and tier two, as I mentioned. And so it's a really comprehensive course that I encourage school-based clinicians to check out um, that's looking at how, does, how do we support students with sensory processing challenges across all of the tiers. And it's a really comprehensive course, including things going from assessment to supporting and intervention ideas and ideas for data collection. So um, you can find that under the, in the STAR website under education. So Great. And we'll have all of that linked um, in the show notes. You can find me, Carrie Schmidt, on Instagram at Carrie Schmidt OTD. That's C-A-R-R-I-E-S-C-H-M-I-T-T-O-T-D. The STAR Institute is a nonprofit organization. You can find out more about us at our website, sensoryhealth.org. That's www.sensoryhealth.org. There you can join our email list, find out about our educational, clinical, and research endeavors, and make a donation. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our wonderful guests and the support from the STAR Institute especially Crystal Hayes and Tori Pluchek. Your feedback matters to us. 
please leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. This is Making Sense. I'm Carrie Schmidt.